to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Good morning, North Decatur Presbyterian Church. I feel so good to do that. (laughs) It's wonderful to be back here in person. And I may say it's also a dreadful delight to be preaching from this pulpit in a community in which Gail and I have gained so much over the years and could not ever pay back. And speaking of the love of my life, Gail is actually live streaming as I speak, as we are here together, from Montreat, which is always a good place to be, which gives me opportunity to do something I've never really done before from this pulpit or from any pulpit for that matter, and that is to say, Gail, I love you. (laughs) And maybe the next opportunity I'm able to do that is when I win an Oscar. (laughs) Wait, I, I think I'm getting a text message from Gail. She says, I love you too. Get going with the preaching. Okay. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Please pray with me. For the many ways, O oh God, that we are connected together, we give you thanks. And for the many ways we are connected to you, O oh God, creator of the universe, sustainer and redeemer. Oh God, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts as we listen again to your word. Indeed, may your living voice speak clearly in the reading and preaching of your ancient word. For we ask this in the one who is the word made flesh and fresh among us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here, two short verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, beginning with Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And from the first epistle of John, chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. The word of God for the people of God. Well, we just did it. It is our common practice at North Decatur, as with many churches, to share the peace of Christ with each other following the assurance of grace which we have learned through sign language now, thanks in part to the pandemic. But I ask you, what if someone next to you said and signed, may the fear of the Lord be with you? (laughs) 
which looks something like this. <laughs> how would you respond? I think I know how I would respond. I would first say, and also with you. <laughs> and then I would move to another pew. So, from super contagious COVID variants, worsening climate disasters, and domestic terrorism, to mass shootings, racialized violence, and white conservative leaders, mostly men, trying to achieve total control over women's bodily health, many, if not most of us, live under a cloud of fear. Some fears are valid, others perhaps not so much. It has been said that 90% of our fears do not reflect reality. But I wonder if this observation needs some significant updating to reflect life in America today. Indeed, there are plenty of reasons, plenty of good reasons to be afraid. And one must acknowledge that some, of the, some communities live in fear much more than others. Driving while black, walking while Asian, continue to attract targeted violence. And there are two sayings that characterize the past few years of living in the US, I think. One is, I can't breathe. And the other is, I am not a virus. Both reflect the targeting of persons in co of color in America. More broadly, much of what we do, whites and persons of color on both ends of the political spectrum, much of what we do is driven by fear now, whether it's electing political leaders, practicing on the shooting range, building walls, or walking guardedly on the sidewalk. You know what I liked about Trump? Asked South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham last month during a speech at a convention in Nashville. Do you know what I, like about, what I liked about Trump? Everyone was afraid of him, including me. And to which I would add, there is truly a fine line between fear and cowardice. What would life be like in our communities without fear? Imagine that. Children going to school without the threat of bullying, and no more active shooter drills. People able to visit any community, any city, to walk in any park, to eat at any restaurant without the slightest concern about violence. Women, both cisgender and transgender, going out by themselves after dark, free to walk under the stars. People of all faiths, political persuasions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and gender identities living their lives openly without the fear of being targeted. Now that would be true shalom in the biblical sense. And the Bible offers many different visions of shalom, but one in particular is one that I think is very fitting for such a time as this. It's one that seems so ordinary, but today seems so extraordinary, thanks to Zechariah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old women and old men shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. 
This image of intergenerational play in the streets and complete safety becomes all the more wondrous and poignant in the aftermath of a mass shooting of a July 4th parade in a Chicago suburb and the indiscriminate bombings of playgrounds and schools in Ukraine. And what about closer to home, even within our homes? Can we even talk to each other now? A world without fear would allow for dialogue and debate to take place without the fear that disagreements might lead to violence. Having open and honest discussions of politics and religion at the dinner table, imagine that, without any concern of alienating family members and causing indigestion for everyone. But that is not the world in which we live today. America, the land of the brave, seems to be riven with fear. And then there's the fear of the Lord, as espoused by our biblical sages. Oh great, is this one more fear to add to our ever-growing list of fears? The fear that God will zap us whenever we cross the line, whatever that line is. Truth be told, that's not the kind of fear meant in Proverbs. Such godly fear has nothing to do with spreading terror or paralyzing guilt, but has all to do with promoting wisdom and well-being. Listen to what our biblical sages say about such fear elsewhere in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. This kind of fear is far different from the kind of fear that elicits fight, flight, and freeze, that kind of response. The fear of the Lord must mean something starkly different from the spirit of cowardice to which Paul refers in 2 Timothy. And for the biblical sages, the fear of the Lord was enlivening and enlightening. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that same proverb also appears in Psalm 111, in which God is praised for doing great works and wonderful deeds, for providing food, for keeping covenant, for doing justice, for redeeming people, for being gracious and merciful. And those are the reasons for fearing the Lord. And such fear is expressed in praise, delight, and responsibility. This God is not a divine terrorist or a manipulator of guilt. You see, the biblical sages insisted that the fear of the Lord draws one closer to God rather than compels one to flee and hide from God's presence like Adam does in the garden after partaking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, fear born of shame. In a word, this kind of fear is affiliative, an affiliative kind of fear which sounds like an oxymoron when we think of fear only as an avoidance response. Moreover, what kind of fear can be claimed as the beginning of wisdom? And how does a God who is gracious and merciful inspire fear? I'm glad you asked that question. This is not fear in any conventional sense, to be sure. It is not a paralyzing terror, but a grateful, joy-filled fear. Such fear, I submit, is akin to awe and wonder.
As the great Jewish biblical theologian Abraham Heschel once said, unlike fear, awe or wonder does not make us shrink from the awe-inspiring object, but on the contrary draws us near to it. Such is God. This strange kind of fear cannot be fully captured in English translation, and the best I can come up with is awe-inspired reverence, even if it does sound a bit clunky. Regardless, awe is the thing that, yes, stops us in our tracks. It arrests us in our routines and shatters our illusions of control, while at the same time arousing a desire to venture forth in a new direction in wisdom and wonder. Awe awakens wonder, and wonder overcomes fear, like the perfect love in 1 John, which casts out fear. Such awe-filled fear has nothing to do with punishment and guilt and everything to do with wonder, love, and praise, to quote a Wesleyan hymn. If awe is the beginning of wonder, then wonder is the beginning of wisdom. Just ask Socrates, who said, Wonder is the only beginning of philosophy. Or as the biblical sages put it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, have you ever experienced such awe and wonder that leads to wisdom? I suspect you have. And believe it or not, there is an emerging field of science called the science of awe. Research psychologists define awe as an, emotional, as an emotion located in the upper reaches of pleasure and on the boundary of fear. All experiences of awe have in common the perception of vastness, whether in size or in complexity, that, to quote one psychologist, dramatically expands our usual frame of reference or world view and at the same time results in a self-perception that researchers described as the small self. That is, a sense of one's very being and goals are small in comparison to something much larger. And what they found, which I find particularly interesting, is that experiences of awe tend to produce what they call pro-social behavior, such as generosity and altruism. So it appears, it appears that the small self is also the empowered self, the self empowered to do good things as a result of an experience of awe. I can give you at least one biblical case in point. The person of Job. After all his suffering, God finally shows up at the voice of the whirlwind and shows Job that the world is much bigger than himself, from the celestial heavens to the awesome creatures of the wild, and Job's response is telling. Job says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job is feeling kind of small right now. He admits to having spoken out of ignorance of the wonderful things he has been shown by God, things too wondrous for him, things he did not understand that required from him a new orientation toward the world 
and himself. Job, yes, finds himself small before God and the vastness of creation. But I don't think that's the most important point in the story of Job. The most important thing is that Job is not rendered incapacitated after having beheld God and the mysteries of creation. Because once Job is restored, he takes on a new kind of agency. He does something quite outlandish and just. Job the patriarch commits the unprecedented act of sharing his inheritance with his three daughters. You have to know that in biblical antiquity, the family's wealth was typically passed on only to the sons, while the daughters had to marry outside the family as a matter of economic survival. But not in Job's household. Job cares about the dignity and well economic well-being of all his children, daughters and sons alike, much like God's care for all the creatures of the wild. And Job's daughters, as a result, had choices that most young women in biblical times would not have had in the ancient world. They had freedom. Perhaps that is because for the first time, Job was able to see through the world, to see the world through his daughter's eyes as much as he perceived the world anew through God's eyes. In any case, it is out of a new empathy that Job comes to realize the struggles that his daughters would face in a world dominated by men. And in doing so, Job upends patriarchal convention as much as God upended Job's world in awe. Job's pro-social behavior served the cause of justice, specifically gender justice, which leads, of course, to a more inclusive love. Such as one biblical example of the politics of fear. Now, we think of the politics of fear as the divisive polarization that has torn up the American political landscape. Fear and fear-mongering, hatred and violence. But biblically speaking, the politics of fear, that is the fear of the Lord, includes justice and mercy, wisdom and hope, joy and perseverance, charity and moral responsibility. Eric Liu, CEO of the Citizen University, a nonprofit organization that teaches civic empowerment, has this to say about the state of American society when it comes to our political discourse. He says, the point isn't for us to get some magical consensus that all Americans believe X or all Americans think this way. America is an argument. We were meant to contest the tensions between liberty and equality between strong national government and local control, between a colorblind approach to law and the Constitution and a color-conscious one. All these tensions are baked into our whole system, and even our politics is toxically polarized right now. We don't need fewer arguments, he says. We just need less stupid ones. Ah, yes. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, yes, but the biblical sage goes on to say, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Developing empathy for others need not suffer fools, I think our biblical sages would say, but neither must we reflexively condemn others as fools who disagree with us. It's complicated. But the sages acknowledge there are times when it is best just to walk away, when no progress can be had. Elsewhere, the sages say, do not answer fools according to their folly, or you might be a fool yourself. And then at the same time, the sages say, answer fools according to their folly, so that they won't be wise in their own eyes. So you get to decide. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> but I digress. I want to end on an experience of awe, the kind of awe that engenders wisdom, that literally invaded our computer screens and television sets earlier uh, this month at the height of political turmoil and polarization and fear. And it was something that seemed to come from our wildest dreams but it was altogether real. From the depths of space came new startling images of the universe way back in time, thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope, which should be renamed, but I digress. Here is one from the Carina Nebula, only 7,600 light years away from Earth. Only, it's practically within our cosmic neighborhood. And what it is, it is a star nursery filled with gas and dust, the raw material for stars and planets, the same stuff you and I were made of. And what you are looking at is a snapshot of stars being birthed, along with stars' entire solar systems, some perhaps like our own, living worlds in the making. Now, that, I would say, is a portrait of otherworldly awe. And is there any wisdom to be had from such awe? Well, I defer to an astronomer, one who had a hand in the development and mission of this telescope, Dr. Kevin Hainline from the University of Arizona. And he had this to say just two weeks ago about the images that have been captured so far by this deep space telescope. He says, so I don't feel small. I never feel small when I look at these images. Instead, I feel so privileged to be given an opportunity to do anything at all, to play a softball game, to pet my cat late at night. These are things that I have been given a privilege by every one of my atoms over 13 billion years ago. I love thinking about this, this map of the universe where all my atoms are like little lights. And for a long period of time, they're all, all over the place. And then whoosh, they're me for a little tiny bit. And then they're back in the universe. That doesn't make me feel small. That makes me feel strong. That makes me feel like 
I have a purpose. He goes on to say, I think that this is why the total obvious purpose, the meaning of life, the reason why we are here is not to destroy. It is not to separate each other. It is not to other each other. It is literally to love each other. And if you don't love each other because you're made out of the same stuff, then you're doing it wrong. We're better when we're diverse. We're better when we come together and work together. We're better when we bring new ideas to the table. That's the whole point of this. And then he concluded, so I want to end with that idea. When you look at these images, don't think, I am so small, what am I? Leave thinking, the universe has put me together. I'm pretty great. Or we could put it theologically, the God of the universe put you and me together, made in the image of the cosmic God and made out of cosmic dust and gas. The God who not only, quote, determines the number of the stars and gives to all of them their names according to the psalmist, but also knows your name and my name. And to know that is to be all the wiser. The fear of the Lord, awe-inspired reverence, that's where wisdom begins. And what would life look like if everyone were open to the kind of wonder that leads to wisdom, the wonder that connects each and every one of us together, as well as to something much larger than ourselves, to the God of the universe, no less? What would life look like if we could all apprehend, comprehend, and experience that? Maybe wisdom and love would actually guide our politics. Our policies would be grounded in the common good from the common God for the flourishing of all communities and the planet. With this kind of wonder, with awe-filled courage, we would work to overcome injustice as it impacts the most vulnerable and the underserved in our communities. In such awe, there would be affordable housing for all with a living income and meaningful work. In such awe, essential workers would no longer be dispensable workers. In such awe, there would be no more wars. In this awe, we would recognize the image of God, no less, in us all, imprinted with the majesty of the universe, no less. Well, one can only wonder but we can also work and hope in our wonder. Like you and I here at North Decatur Presbyterian Church, you are an embodiment of the awe-filled reverence of God. And as we think of new strategies and new plans, and as we work and wonder now and in the future, I'd like to end with this, dear friends. May the fear of the Lord be with you. Amen.